Surgical Society podcast. I'm Frank Davis, the president of the Surgical Society and host of this podcast. Throughout the year, I'm going to be talking to world-leading surgeons, incredible doctors with interesting passions, and the brightest and best medical students to help you score higher in your exams. Please follow our social media, cu underscore surgstock, and rate and download this podcast. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Ailey Garrett, the founder of the uh, Livable Bursary for medical students. Ailey, it's um, a pleasure to have you on here. I'm going to start straight away and ask you, do you think that medical students know what they're getting into when they sign up to study a medical degree in terms of the potential financial hardships? So I think there's one school of students that know what's going to happen, try and work out what they can do. And there's another half of students that I think don't know And the reason that they don't know is because medicine is so competitive and so hard to get into. They're much more focused on just that initial barrier of getting in. And then to them, it's like, well, five years time, I'm going to have this bursary issue or they they don't know about it. It's much more um, abstract to them. So they might not necessarily look into it at all. And I think there is an assumption that the government are going to fund healthcare courses because why wouldn't they? Um, So, yeah, I think that maybe students just don't look into it or because they're so struggling so much with even getting in in the first place yeah I'm thinking back to when I applied I I don't think it was at the front of my mind at all Uh, it was only until I got to fourth year that I realized you know that we'd be getting this bursary and and then obviously it it didn't add up but you talked there a little bit about your um, that you were part of that uh, group that did look into it can you tell us a bit about your about about yourself and your journey sort of into and, and within medicine so far yeah, so I'm a graduate entry medical student and I suppose well that what that means is that I've done a degree first and then come and done a four-year course. So I actually get three years of bursary funding, uh, which is really difficult. And I suppose I've seen both ends of the spectrum. So I initially came from a background that was quite wealthy and it was much easier for me to engage on my medicine course. But I had a sudden change in circumstances. The amount of money that I had available to me was completely gone and I only could rely on the student funding and so I think my journey suddenly became much much more difficult once I didn't have any financial backing Um, and that's really what prompted me to start the campaign because there's so many I basically thought god I'm struggling and I came I have perhaps less housing costs than other people for example and I realised how hard it is for so many students that are almost suffering in silence. Um, so, yeah, I'm in my final year now, so my fourth year, but fifth year of medicine. And I'm finding more and more stories out every day about other students that are also struggling. Uh, and it gets quite hard to hear, to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. You said there there was a, a sudden uh, change of circumstance. Are, are you able to go into what that was? Yeah, so I um, had like my parents backing and I I think I just didn't think about, um, it was kind of things where I, I did have to pay for things myself. I did have a job, but say if something went wrong in my life, I could call my parents and say, hey, you know, something unexpected happened. Can you bail me out? Um, and then I became kind of estranged from my family for a number of reasons um and then it just i suddenly realized that when things were going wrong i had no fallback option and it became really unsettling 
and it's really hard to deal with like life's ordinary problems if you don't if you can't even work out how you're gonna pay for your next you know set of bills or energy shop i'm sorry (laughs) energy shop food shop um so i think yeah like i say i've just seen both sides of it and that's really what prompted me i just realized how many students must be in that circumstance where they don't have parents to fall back on or they don't have whatever family or friends to fall back on and really we should be having a degree that is funded so that we can be independent adults because when you're in your fifth year of medicine you're at least 22 23 that's an adult really Mm. i'm 24 and I, i still feel like you know i definitely still rely on my parents financially um which you know as yeah like you say as in your mid 20s you don't really want to be doing so talk to me about the NHS bursary campaign, how did it start? How, how, what, what sort of sparked you in, into making this? Um, so if I'm being really honest, um, it came when I suddenly became estranged from my parents, it was really hard. I got quite unwell because, like I say, I just couldn't deal with small things happening in my life because I was so worried about finances that I wasn't sleeping properly, I wasn't eating properly. And so I thought I'm going to get through my exams and then after that I'm going to... Run, I'm not going to shut up about this until people start talking about it. And I think what the turning point for me was when I realised what other healthcare degrees get. And I couldn't come to a conclusion of why we get so much less than everyone else. And so things kind of started to take a hold. And then um, some friends kind of, well, now friends, but at the time, strangers came on board and saw me ranting about it and said, hey, we've also been kind of trying to get awareness about this as well. So that was Michaela, Trish and Penny. And so we all made a group together and just together became a kind of force to be reckoned with um, and got involved with Doctors Association UK. And we literally did not shut up about it for months. (laughs) You obviously found, like you say, strangers now, friends that supported you. But what about those bigger organisations? Have you felt any pushback or have they been um, sort of welcoming of this? Yeah, so straight away, Doctors Association were really useful. And so I suppose there's several organisations that we've worked with. We've worked with the BMA, um, which I can go into a bit more. We've worked with the Medical School Council, who have been amazingly supportive um, and invited us to speak at their executive meeting, which was essentially the deans of a number of medical schools. And they didn't actually know the funding. Wow. Um, they admit they admitted that themselves. And when I, I think perhaps they knew the numbers, but they hadn't crunched it down before. Um, and so, yeah, they were shocked. I mean, you could have heard a penny drop when we were describing it to them. And then from that, we've just been invited to more and more things. So we've been invited to conferences. I was at the Royal College of Emergency Medicine the other day. And what I'm finding is people perhaps knew that the funding was cut in fifth year, but they had no idea when you look at the average cost of rent that it doesn't even cover rent. Um, So, yeah, we've had a lot of support from a lot of organisations. Sheffield University have made changes now. Leeds University have made changes. Nottingham have made changes. So it's kind of like universities are falling like dominoes in terms of starting to make changes. It's just trying to get that to trickle through. And what sort of changes have they made? Um, So some universities um, have introduced paying for the GMC registration fees. And then some of them, I know Nottingham's particularly one, um, 
Jonathan Van Tam actually sent out an email to every single med student saying that essentially if they had any kind of funding deficit and needed extra money, they were going to have a process where they could apply for extra money and it wasn't going to be as rigorous as perhaps the hardship funds have been. Um, and Jonathan Van Tam said that that was a, as a direct result of the campaigning that we've done. Um, so it was actually really nice to see someone that I quite looked up to and saw on TV all the time has taken note of kind of a movement that's happened online. And yeah, it seems like lots of universities are making real tangible changes. Um, we have kind of recommendations for universities as well that we think could, you know, make a bit of a difference in terms of um, just not necessarily giving students money, but certainly um, giving them a bit of an easier life. Um, so some of those changes are things like um, providing scrubs that don't cost money, so students don't have to pay lots of money to um, get clinical clothes, or perhaps providing timetables in advance um, so that students can work, just kind of things like that, really. Yeah, and um, so you, you mentioned some of the unis there, Nottingham in particular, of that made changes. But what about your your university that you go to? Obviously, you're you're sort of head of this Newcastle Uni. Have they done anything in particular? Um, yeah, so I've taken this to them a couple of times, and I think the first time that again they didn't really know about the funding, mm. um, and they asked me to tell them about the funding, and then um, I came back in September. And they said that what they've noticed is there's basically a fund that lots of students get on the years one to four, where if they've come from a low income background, they get an extra stipend also like automatically applied on top of their student loan. Um, I think it's called like a learning opportunity fund or learning opportunity grant. And he said that that's only available in years one to four. But the problem is, is that in year five, they lose it but the amount of people that are applying to hardship grants is not as many as the amount of people that previously had this fund and he said what that suggests is that there's lots of students that are in fact struggling but they're doing so in silence so we've had lots of chats about um they've got this hardship fund that they're making all medical students aware of however to date they've said that there's not really anything that's come through the woodworks from that. So today it's just a fund that all students can apply to. They said they're working on a fund that will be particularly for medical students, but they need the hard numbers of how many people are applying to the hardship funds to be able to justify it. My problem with that is that the hardship funds are really lengthy to apply to. And I think there's lots of students struggling that don't necessarily apply to the fund because it's so inaccessible. Um, so I had to pay, I had to, I applied for it myself when I was in really bad financial hardship. And I had to highlight three months of bank accounts, any expenditure over 50 pounds and explain why I'd spent it, wow. which was a huge admin undertaking. And then after all of that, I got rejected because I hadn't yet maxed out my credit card. So <laughs> the hardship funds are really inaccessible. And my question is, if we get if the maximum amount is proven as not enough to live off, then why do we have to send our bank account details in to prove that we haven't got enough money when it is just logical that we don't have enough money because we are not given appropriate funding? Yeah, absolutely. Fundamentally, do you feel let down? Because when I hear this, when I hear you say that 
a dean of medicine doesn't understand the funding that medical students get when a hardship fund is so inaccessible. I just feel like, who are these people that are making these decisions? I do feel really let down by them. Yeah, I mean, I think I feel let down by a number of people. Um, and I think when I look at the dean's job, perhaps that doesn't really come into the dean's scope of, you know, practice. I suppose they're for much higher managerial stuff. Um, but what I actually do feel let down by sometimes is the BMA. I mean, this hasn't been a problem for a year. This has been a problem since at least 2012. And why did it take four loud women to get a national movement on it rather than our trade union? I've heard some really mixed reviews of the BMA. So what's your experience of dealing with them? Um, so I really support trade unionism. I'm really behind the idea of pay restoration. And I think that trade unionism as a concept is a really good idea. I think, unfortunately, the BMA is a bit stuck behind in terms of enacting change in a in a kind of uh, a time period that we would expect. So as an example, when the pay announcement came out, the nurses managed to ballot within almost straight away on whether they were going to strike. We're not balloting until January because the BMA, in my opinion, haven't really been able to um, get enough support on board for the ballot to be successful. Um, so I suppose what that's saying is in a very long-winded way is that I sometimes feel like the BMA is a bit held back by bureaucracy. And so I think the, the kind of headbutting that we had with the BMA was that the BMA, and I understand why, had previously put in motions. So what happens is people put motions in, they're voted on, and then it becomes like on the BMA agenda. Um, Previously, the motions being put in had been asking for a full livable bursary. So, you know, looking at a £10,000 bursary. Um, and that wasn't the same as what our aims was as part of the campaign. Right. And this has caused a lot of divide. So a lot of people have been like, Ailey, why would you not want more money? And I understand why people are saying that. But the reason... So to highlight what our aims are, we're just asking for the same as all other healthcare students. So we're saying, can everyone have that £5,000 bursary? And can everyone have a full maintenance loan rather than it being capped at £1,975? And also, can we have a review of the travel expenses? My problem with asking for a £10,000 bursary is we're then asking for double what all healthcare students get when we're already getting less than them. And my long-term plan would be, let's get at least the same as all other healthcare students and then campaign together to get more. Um, and also, because we're in such, so many students are struggling so much, the easiest political win is to get a full maintenance loan because it's a loan and ultimately students pay back far more of their loan than they actually borrow. So it's much easier to say to the government, can you give a loan that's an easier sell than saying, can we have some free money? So our mission is kind of guided by wanting a fast response, but also the easiest political win. And that's not because we're kind of glory hunting for ourselves. That's literally because we need money for students and we need it now. If we ask for something that's much more than anyone else gets, um, 
there's something literally called the piss off point. And <sighs> the idea is that if you go to someone and you ask for something that's so absurd, they will just say, get lost. We're not interested in talking to you anymore because you're asking for something so ridiculous. We just don't want to get to that stage. Do you think that £10,000, though, is ridiculous? I think that it's um, completely understandable. I think my personal, almost political opinion is that all healthcare degrees should be funded enough that students can study and live without any debt and be able and not be forced to work. But I think asking for double what nurses, physios, dental therapists, hygienists, all of these students get is to me a bit ridiculous. I think that we'd have more strength in numbers if we got the same as them and then campaigned as a front together with thousands more students mm. to get, you know, something like ten thousand pounds in the future. Now you've obviously expressed some like concern with the BMA and how they sort of act. Do you ever inspire maybe to try and get a role within the BMA or have you had a role in the BMA so you feel like you could maybe change what it's about on like a on a larger scale? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think the trade union is only as good as the members that make it. And I'm very much comforted by what's happened in the BMA recently. I think a lot of my gripes with the BMA are gripes that are shared with a lot of people because of the 2016 strikes. I think that the BMA's changed a lot. I think it needs to have time to show its potential that it's changed because the new um, junior doctor committee has only just come in. And if it really still hasn't, then I think I would go for a role. And regardless, I might go for a role either way because I do quite believe in trade unionism. Yeah, and, and do you see that for yourself? Obviously, you founded this NHS um, bursary campaign. Do you see yourself in a leadership role in the future? See, I think if I can get my teeth into something like I'm into this, I could see myself in a leadership role. It's not um, something that I ever went into medicine intending to do. And to be honest, even when this campaign started, I didn't know what it would end up looking like. Yeah. But yeah, I think I would think about it in the future. I mean, I mean, even for yourself, I'm sure that no one would never say never, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so we've talked about the NHS bursary campaign, how it started, sort of how it's going. But do you see, where do you see it going in the future? I think it's really hard to say because I think a lot of this, to be said is about momentum so when this start first started i had four journalists calling me a day it was really stressful uh yeah it was a, a lot and then some journalists will pick you up and drop it so we had good morning britain being like can you come on tv and then just suddenly ghosting us because okay. another story came up so um and i think what i'm also trying to say is that since the campaign started we've had about six controversies of Boris Johnson then he's left government <laughs> then we've had a new prime minister we've had more controversies they're changing secretary of state every five seconds we had a grip on things we've got something like 4,000 letters sent out to MPs we had you know key political figures um Diane Abbott the Lib Dems are trying to see if they can put it through as one of their party policies but because the political situation mm. was so almost once in a generation we couldn't sustain the momentum because people lost interest because there was so much going on so 
it feels like to get things going again, we would need something to get a lot of momentum again, whether that's a key political or popular figure kind of helping us. Um, and I think it begs the question. I, I do put pressure on the medical schools through the MSC, but also um, through other students who then put it on themselves. But the question is, if we put too much pressure on medical schools and they almost do too much, then what is the incentive for the government to fix what is ultimately a funding issue? Um, because if we get our aims through, we're looking at a 10... So say for myself, I'd get the full maintenance loan, £10,000, and the £5,000 bursary, that's £15,000 a year more to live off. Mm. That would be... You know, that is the ultimate goal. I can get universities to do hardship funds, but that's just for people as and when. But I think that this is something that all students should receive because, you know, all other healthcare students receive it. So, um, yeah, I think, I don't know where it's going, but certainly it's something that I will keep pushing. It's just working out how. And you talked about uh, government figures there and the, the government uh, or political landscape. Do you see that support coming from our uh, from our current government? Um, so what ended up happening with the Conservative MPs is when you get lots of people sending lots of letters through about the same thing, they develop a stock response that comes from, that then is, no matter the MP, the conser any Conservative MP will just reply with the same stock response. Right. So that stock response and it was really disheartening because I was having people like, Ailey, Ailey, my MP replied. And I was like, so excited. And I was like, yeah, this is going to be the letter. And then the reply would just be the same stock response. And it basically said, well, we keep the situation under constant review. And, you know, my question is, is if you're reviewing the situation and people's finances isn't even covering half the cost of living, then I'm really scared about your review processes because they're not yeah. very robust. Um, so there's that. And then what else they also said, um, they were kept telling me in their letters what the funding for medical students is. And it was just incredibly annoying because our letter told them what the funding was and then they just repeated it back to us. Um, so they repeated it back and then they said, well, actually you have access to hardship loans. Um, and, uh, you get the NHS bursary, which is some free money. So they essentially said you should be happy with what you've got. And to me, so, so like if we think about the figures, if we got, say if we got, if we got full maintenance loans back and the bursary remained the same, you would actually still pay back the exact same amount because all of our loans have a 30 year cap on it and our pay is so low and the interest rates are so high that you, you're going to pay back a fixed mm -hmm. amount. So it doesn't matter what debt you get into anymore. So actually when they're saying, yeah, but we're giving you free money, giving us more of a loan would essentially be free money anyway. Well, it's not free money because yeah. we end up paying back more, but it is inconsequential to us. Without wanting to get too much into politics, do you, or in the next general election, is if it was a Labour government, do you think you'd have more success? That's a really good question, actually. Um, so where Streeting's current stance is, let's increase the medical school places, he doesn't seem to talk about funding at all, not even funding, but also not, you know, he's not addressing the pay for doctors. And I said to him, if you've got a big bucket of water and you've got a massive gaping Australia-shaped hole coming out of it, pouring more water in the bucket, i.e. more medical school places, is doing absolutely nothing because you're just going to lose them. And 
my opinion is that if you keep underfunding medical students, they're going to want to recoup that money and they're going to want to do it abroad where they can make much more, even if you mistreat them from an early stage. Some Labour MPs have had really positive responses. Diane Abbott had a really positive response. Um, a few Labour MPs following me on Twitter and really supportive. Whether that would trickle up to policies changing, I don't know. But I do think as a party, they're much more sympathetic to the plight of the average person and social mobility. So I would like to think that they might be a bit more open to a discussion about it. Yeah, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? Um, and you yeah. talk there about um, a couple follow you on Twitter. I follow you on Twitter and um, you've got quite the following now, both on like Instagram and Twitter. How is it being sort of being uh, a medical student or just sort of like a medic? and having quite a following? Because some people would say that can be a bit dangerous and I can sometimes see in your replies, you sort of get a bit back at you. How's that been? Yeah, it's really difficult because I do believe that we have less protection as medical students than we would when we've graduated. And part of me is just counting down the days till we graduate so I can feel a bit more safe. Yeah. Um, but what I would say about it is I think that for me, it's just a case of I know what the GMC guidance is. I know what I'm allowed to say and not allowed to say. And so I just have to keep reminding myself. And sometimes it is a case of I might say something and then just rapidly delete it because it is, you know, a bit like borderline. Mm. And honestly, it's not worth the stress of saying anything borderline, even if what you said would turn into nothing. One complaint, one email. I'm, I've had friends that have been through the process it's completely destroyed them. So yeah, it can be stressful, but I think my takeaway from it is that Twitter is an amazing source for good. And what I mean by that is the more retweets you get on something, the more the media pick up on it and the more they want a story because they think people are interested. So you almost can't not go on Twitter. Um, I had an ish incident, actually. <laughs> I, I don't know if you'll be familiar with this. Um, I had a... I was told off in an exam for having too short of a dress. Oh, does yeah. that ring any bell? Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, yeah. People are always like, yeah. oh, that's you. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So essentially, for anyone that doesn't know, I was told off for an exam for... Um, so you can fail for professionalism no matter if you get 100% in a practical exam. Mm. And if you had more than one doctor that... I don't know if this is the same at Cardiff, but if you have more than one doctor that agrees, you failed. You have to retake the year. End of story. Is that similar for you? Yeah, like like you can fail on professionalism, but there's only one doctor there, so they sort of make the decision. But you can you can fail one and still and still pass. Yeah, so it's the same. It's it's more like if if um, another doctor on another station said the same thing, oh, then I would right. fail. Oh, I'm yeah. not sure about that. Yeah, you don't sort of hear about that too much. Well, fortunately, only one one person did say that my dress was inappropriate. Um, and so I kind of went through a complaints process and said my dress was down to my shins and part of the complaint was that I wasn't wearing leg coverings which just isn't <laughs> it's not in the 21st century but it's also not in the dress code policy you just um, don't believe that doctors could actually have this opinion do you know what I mean but it's just it's bonkers isn't it yeah, it is. It is bonkers. Um, so I went through and I would say this to anyone that's listening, always go through the appropriate channels. I went through the appropriate channels and I was basically told the consultants, right, you're wrong. Um, and I just was flabbergasted. And I said, well, kind of their appeals process. And they were like, no. And I was like, this person is going around saying actually really sexist things. 
and there's no recompense at all. Um, so I put it on Twitter. <laughs> I went, it went viral. And when I'm talking viral, we're talking like the BBC News hunted down and worked out my um, my university email address. Wow. I was getting like bombarded. It, it got something like two million interactions on Twitter. <sighs> I know it was crazy. Um, but I, I mean, I didn't get into any trouble at all. And actually, once I'd got, <laughs> once I'd got a response and the university saw that it was overwhelmingly in my favour, I think they took me a bit more seriously. I'm not advocating that people put things on Twitter, but what I'm saying is there is an appropriate way to use it. That particular case is probably a bit more borderline. Um, and I think that it can be a force to generate conversations because from that, we had lots of conversations of, you know, why are we policing women's bodies? And I know from uh, a colleague that now when they train their examiners for these practical exams, they bring up my case and they talk about, you know, things have to be objectively unprofessional. They can't be subjectively unprofessional. Um, so actually, I think Twitter is a really good force for good, but it has to be used, you know, appropriately. Yeah, and I guess in an ideal world, you'd hope that a tweet, you know, wouldn't have to have two million interactions for the university to take you seriously. But at least, at least there's something there. Is there anything that we can do, or you know, I'm I'm certainly someone who sits there and complains about the NHS bursary, um, but doesn't really do anything about it. Is there anything that we can do to sort of support this movement going forward? Oh, that's a nice question. I think the first thing is. Um, I know you say don't do anything about it, but also you've got me here now, so <laughs> you are doing something about it. Um, but also, I think no one should beat themselves up over not being like a driving force or even a small voice in this because we're all so busy. And I've found that the students that are the most effective, uh, affected who have to work loads on top of university, they don't have time to shout about this. And that's completely fine. But if someone does have time, it's a case of, perhaps letting their university know about their campaign because then they can look into it and realize that this is a national problem but um we can also send they can contact me and we can send our full list of recommendations to medical schools that we think should help so um like i say things like giving timetables well in advance uh, medical schools can be great resources of employment um but unfortunately it's not utilized well enough um so yeah let us get in touch with us or me um and tell us that you want to contact your medical school the recommendations set up meetings with your medical school um and i suppose just keep shouting about it the only reason i tell people to use the hashtag is because when you go on the hashtag you can see lots of other people's stories on the top tweets um and so for politicians particularly that works really well you can also write to your MP and I can send a template. So literally all you need to do is add your name to it. Um, so, yeah, it's just a case of getting in touch, but just talking about it, like sending a tweet or even amplifying a tweet. I was at the Royal College of Emergency Medicine Conference recently and I was with um, a panel of people and it was about wicked problems. And a wicked problem is essentially a problem that um, is difficult to fix, whether that's logistically or politically. And um, I realised that all of those people had campaigns on social media. And our take-home message was, if you want to, you know, make change, something as small as a retweet is so useful because it boosts an algorithm that gets more people to see it. Um, 
and that's not necessarily retweeting my tweets, but other students that are complaining about the same thing. I think also with some of the students that have complained about the same thing and we've kind of amplified their voice, I think they just feel less lonely and less embarrassed to admit that they can't afford to live. And I actually really think that that's a really nice, it shows a bit of solidarity. So even on those students' behalf, if you see something from students kind of complaining um, and can offer them some support, even emotionally, that's a really nice thing to do. No, I think that's some some great advice there. So uh, final question, you're obviously in final year. Uh, where is it sort of deanery-wise that you've applied and what sort of area of medicine are you hoping to go into? Um, so I want to go to the Northwest um, and into anaesthetics. Um, I suppose whilst I'm on the subject, I think this is why um, I'm also frustrated about the system, is that because I've got the NHS bursary for three years, I've been ranked against my colleagues who are on the undergraduate course who um, get the have had the full funding. So oh, I've been living yeah. off a fraction of them, having to work to make up my money, but then I'm ranked against them when they don't have they don't necessarily have to work to live. That annoys, it's something to think about with the system. But then also, um, if someone is ranked more, like not quite so well, they might get sent to more of a district hospital, there might be less teaching opportunities. You know, it these funding issues don't just stop at medical school, they keep going on into speciality training and all of that. Um, so it's something to be wary of. But sorry, long-winded way of saying Northwest and into anaesthetics. Well, good luck for that. I can, yeah, you know, you make a good point. It's a perpetual sort of thing, isn't it? But no, thank you very much for coming on. It's an amazing thing that you've you've started and something that I think we should all get behind. So thank you very much for talking about it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Surgical Society podcast, where I was joined by Ailey Garrett, the founder of the Liverpool Bursary. Please join me next week where I speak to the wonderful paediatric orthopaedic consultant, Miss Claire Carpenter. <laughs>